Let's open our Bibles this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 8 and look at verses 1 through 18. 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 18. The topic we're going to find there is this. David conquers adversary after adversary in the name of the Lord. The title of our message this morning, We Are the Champions of the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we approach your word, I pray that we would humble ourselves, uh, not just in praying, Lord, but in our hearts, and that we would know that you want to speak to us about things like your love and grace, about your mercy and forgiveness. Uh, Lord, we want to be obedient. That's why we're here this morning. We just need to learn more about you, see you uh, in, a, in a greater focus uh, uh, you know, than we've ever seen you before. And so use your word, Lord, to sharpen our focus as we look at Christ. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And all who agreed said, Amen. We're going to see King David's success in several military campaigns. He advances and gains ground against Israel's enemies in every direction of the compass. It's going to serve for us as Christians as an illustration of advancing and gaining spiritual ground in what we might call our campaign towards heaven. The New Testament, especially the Apostle Paul, frequently appeals to military illustrations and images to help us understand what it means to be a Christian on the earth. Paul was not in the military, uh, but he was frequently uh, handcuffed to a Roman centurion uh, in his various imprisonments. And I'm sure he learned a lot by talking to those guys. They sure learned a lot from him about Jesus Christ. But he picked their brain and understood uh, military practice and strategy. And so he employed that uh, in a way that his readers in the first century and that we could understand by well illustration. One classic passage in which Paul refers to Christians as soldiers, 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, you therefore, speaking to all Christians, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Then there is, of course, the famous passage in the sixth chapter of his letter to the Ephesian church where Paul describes the Christian as a soldier and encourages you to take up the whole armor of God. And he goes from head to foot and he takes every piece of Roman armor and he makes a spiritual application of it. The Roman army was especially adept in advancing against enemy ranks. They employed certain combat techniques and tactics to gain ground uh, some of them were called the wedge and the tortoise, really. That's what they called it. The Romans employed the wedge formation, shaped like the point of an arrow, and they would penetrate the enemy line, and then once in among the enemy, they could peel off and uh, do uh, what they did best, and that is kill. The Romans used the tortoise formation to create an impenetrable shell by locking their shields together to protect their bodies and their heads from arrows being fired or spears being thrown by the enemy. And so they would lock all their shields above and in front, and then they would walk really slowly like a tortoise uh, covered with this shell until they penetrated the enemy lines, and then again they would peel off and destroy their enemies. By the way, as an aside, it's fun doing research on the Internet. Uh, the average Roman soldier, five foot four. I hate to blow your mind. I mean, I, you think he's some kind of big, you know, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of guy. But, uh, of course, how, how tall is Arnold? Who knows this? 
He says that's six foot, you know, five foot four dynamo. So you short people rejoice. We, <laughs> we want to be advancing, gaining ground, do we not? To that end, let's see what we can glean from David's success. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, check for the characteristics that indicate you are gaining ground. And number two, contend for the character traits that indicate you are gaining ground. First of all, in verses 1 through 15, let's check for some characteristics. It's pretty obvious in a military campaign whether or not you are advancing and gaining ground. It's not so obvious in our spiritual campaigns because often our advancing involves things that initially outwardly seem to be setbacks. Things like sufferings and afflictions and trials, which always initially seem to be setbacks, are the things used by the Lord to cause us to advance spiritually. Some of you in your annual devotional reading are in the book of Job right now. By the way, my recommendation is that you get out of it as soon as possible. Go home and read the rest of it this afternoon before something happens. But anyway, uh, you're reading through Job. And you see that Job, I mean, you know, all these terrible things come upon Job and his friends see them as setbacks. They say, you're not really spiritual. You're a liar. Uh, you know, you're hiding sin and those kinds of things. But we know because we've read the end of the story that God meant it for good. And Job will realize uh, the joy of, of walking with God through those afflictions and trials and sufferings. And so looking at Job, you think, man, that's a massive setback. Everything he owned and all the people he loved except his wife, uh, who didn't seem to love him, uh, you know, taken from him. That's a setback. But God said, no, this is an advance, a tremendous advance that is going to minister to millions and maybe billions of people throughout the age. Uh, and so we need to be able to identify certain spiritual characteristics of gaining ground. Things that we can see with spiritual eyes even in a physical setback. Now in the descriptions of David's advances and victories, we can indeed identify a few characteristics of successful campaigns. I'm going to identify some. You'll probably see some others that I missed. We see in verse 1, for example, that it's a characteristic of spiritual advance that we follow through when the Lord stirs our hearts to step out in faith. And so look at, uh, look at verse 1. After this it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amah from the hand of the Philistines. Now Metheg Amah, I'm told, is another name for Gath, which is the chief city of the Philistines. Its root word means to bridle or to curb. Alan Redpath suggests that it describes the fact that the Philistines kept the Israelites bridled or curbed in their attempts to occupy all the land given to them by God. It causes us to ask if there's maybe a chief city in our life, something that holds us back from fully serving the Lord. It could be something like fear, for example. Here's how this would work. You hear about a ministry or a mission and you might feel prompted by the Lord to participate, but then fear qu quickly bridles you or it curbs your enthusiasm and you let the opportunity pass. Uh, not... Not everybody has to go on every mission, you know that. And so maybe sometimes you'll hear about a mission 
And, um, uh, you know, obviously we've seen in the life of David, there are those who stay behind and support and there's those who go. But there are those every now and then, you know, a mission comes up, whether it's to the United States or downtown or across the world. And, and there's that welling up in your heart. You think, oh, I, I, I want to go on that. I need to go on that. But if you're not able to follow through because sometimes you think, well, I don't have the money or I don't have the time or I'd never get the time. I'm not even going to ask for the time off. I don't see how the money would work out. I'm not spiritual enough. And and really it's fear that begins to grip you. It could be anything else. It doesn't have to even be a mission. It just could be some area of service. And oftentimes people, they, they're prompted by the Lord. That's why we do the announcements. It's like, hey, wow, I could get involved. Well, no, I better not. You know, I better wait until I'm more spiritual or I know some more things. And, and you end up not following through on that uh, prompting of the Lord. And so uh, maybe it's time for you to advance, to start serving in the church, or to start something at work or in your neighborhood that would advance the gospel and to follow through on the general stirring in your heart. I've said many times over the years, uh, if, if you're in a work environment, try to start something. Start a Bible study. Uh, you know, I don't know if, you know, not everybody's in an office. Some people are outdoors. But, you know, generally start something. If you're in an office and you have a lunch room or a lunch time, just start something. It doesn't even have to be on site. Just let people know, hey, on Thursdays or whatever day, we're going to have a Bible study in the morning before work or whatever. Uh, who knows? I encourage you, I hope, I'm, I hope you won't think this is, uh, you know, uh, radical. I encourage you, carry your Bible. Wear something you know, that shows a witness for Christ until your employer tells you you can't. Don't think, well, I better not do that because I'll get in trouble. Do it and let them put it on them. Let them come to you and say, hey, we don't want you carrying your Bible. And then be gracious about it. Don't get into a fight and ruin your witness. You know, just say, oh, praise the Lord. You know, I didn't realize that my love for Jesus Christ was so offensive. You know, or something like that. You know, let them come on you. So do something. You know, I like, and I, I mean, you know, just maybe you're encouraged today because uh, I know I was in that environment for many years. And you think, oh, you know, oh, I don't want to, and stuff. And then you think, well, yeah, I do want to. Uh, I, I'm, I remember I was a salesman and I used to pass out, it was a, a little flyer called The Good News. Uh, and it, it had two pages of just fun news stories, you know, good news that you don't get on television at night, real news stories. And then there was a little gospel presentation on the back, and I would staple my card to it, and I'd leave it uh, at my calls. And that went on for four or five months until some atheist uh, got upset and called my boss, and he called me in, and he said, yeah, you can't do that. And I said, well, praise the Lord, you know. So I did something else. Uh, you know, they're not going to fire you for it. Uh, you just get out there and do it. Uh, of course, if they do fire you for it, you never heard that from me. But uh, anyway, <laughs> straight from the Lord. Now we're going <laughs> to we're going to see in verse two. It's a characteristic of spiritual advance that we are led by the Holy Spirit rather than defaulting to old habits and traditions. Verse two. Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death. And with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. David executed two-thirds of the Moabites using some sort of measuring system that uh, Bible commentators don't fully understand. Even A.W. Pink, a commentator who normally sees an allegory in every verse, says that he can't make sense of what this might mean. Well, looking at it from a broader perspective, we would say... 
at the very least, that David employed different strategies in the various campaigns he found himself engaged in. So must we in our walk with the Lord. It's a reminder to us we must be led by the Holy Spirit. If you're anything like me, you're a creature of habit, and that carries over into your spiritual life. It's great to establish spiritual habits so long as they don't become old, stale uh, you know, shells that don't have any life in them. For example, Jesus healed a lot of people when he was on the earth. As far as I can tell, he never healed a blind man the same way twice. He listened to his father and then he proceeded as instructed. Now, as a radical illustration, uh, I, I remember a few years ago there was a, a group of churches that was, uh, and God bless them, you know, their desire was great. They were really getting into God being a healer and, and, and the gifts of healing. And they said that, you know, those gifts have been forgotten in the, in the modern church. And, and they were very sincere uh, and, and they were really into it. But they got so deep into it that they were teaching classes on healing. Uh, and they were teaching people how to heal. And what they meant by that was they said that there were certain, uh, even hand positions to heal certain uh, ailments. And so they had certain hand positions for back healing, certain other hand positions for neck healings, and different things like that. And they were very serious about it. We would chuckle a little bit, uh, you know. Uh, but they were sincere. They were just sincerely wrong. Uh, because if you got to blindness, what, what is it that you do to cure blindness, to heal blindness? If you're the Lord, do you spit on the ground, make mud and put it on somebody's eyes? Do you just speak it? Do you, you know, how is it that you do you do it in stages? Because Jesus used all of those techniques. Uh, the truth is there is no technique. There's just listening to the father and proceeding biblically from that point. And so it's a reminder to us uh, that maybe it's time to take a measure of our own spiritual life and get some fresh perspective. Uh, We're never to settle in, and that's why the Bible says that we need to be stirred up so that we're always, based on the Word, of course, but following the leading of the Holy Spirit. Then we see in verse 3 and 4 that it's characteristic of a spiritual advance that we utilize spiritual weapons against our adversaries, never the weapons of the world. Verse 3, David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. David made an assault against Hadadezer, the king of Zobah, which is in an area just north of modern-day Damascus. Hadadezer had gone on a campaign to the Euphrates River to recover some territory, and in his absence, David struck. And so you see all the different strategies David employed. Why hamstring the horses? Well, in Deuteronomy 17, the Lord instructed the Israelites not to multiply horses to themselves. The horse, and especially the horse-drawn chariot, major weapons of war in those days. It was like having a tank come over the hill against foot soldiers. The Lord did not want Israel to begin to trust in weapons, but rather to put their trust in Him. The hundred chariots that David did keep were for ceremonial purposes. The idea was that he had captured this tremendous military arsenal, but he hamstrung the most part of it so that the horses could not be used for war. 
It's an exhortation to us to take inventory of the weapons that we employ as we are trying to gain ground for the Lord. Do we use methods of the world? We've talked at length before about, for example, the preference many Christians have for modern psychology over the spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible study. We would say that those are the weapons of the world. Uh, we look at those and we say, well, what the church is doing is ancient and, and failing. There's more and more problems out in the world and the church isn't really meeting them. And so let's borrow what the world has come up with and put those together and we'll have the best of both worlds. And so, you know, we're, we're doing that. Or sometimes churches adopt methods that tend to manipulate or intimidate people in order to get you to a godly goal. They, they use business strategies uh, and, and kind of marketing techniques in order to, uh, you know, have funding campaigns, for example, because the goal is godly, but the methods are not. Let's be sure that the weapons of our warfare remain spiritual. The weapons of the world seem powerful at first, and they might even work on some level, on some worldly level, on some earthly level, on some fleshly level, but uh, we need to hamstring them and then see that the Lord is our shield and our fortress. Now we see in verses 5, 6, and 14, it's a characteristic of spiritual advance that we do whatever is necessary to keep from losing ground we have gained. Verse 5 when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, the king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute, so the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Verse 14, he also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David conquered these enemies and then to be certain that they did not grow strong again in his absence, he established outposts, garrisons, and he left soldiers there to guard his victory. We need garrisons in our lives. We need to establish protections, for example, against falling back into the sins God has delivered us from. You know what it is or who it is that tempts you to sin. You need to do whatever it takes to guard against it. Jesus once suggested as an illustration, if your eye is the source of the problem, pluck it out, he said, or if your hand is the source of the problem, cut it off. He was stressing the radical nature of sin, emphasizing that we need to go to spiritual extremes when necessary to guard against it. Certainly, you know, he wasn't suggesting real mutilation. He was saying, look, uh, if you could quit sinning by plucking out an eye, then you would do it. Or cutting off a hand, you would do it. Uh, you need to do whatever is radical spiritually to keep yourself from sinning. A few years ago, when people were realizing that the Internet could be a terrible source of sin, uh, say in the area of pornography, uh, Calvary Costa Mesa published a little uh, booklet on how to keep yourself safe on the Internet. And they talk about the firewalls and, you know, all of the monitoring software and all of the various things that you can do, which are all good and we should be employing. But then at the end, they were honest and they said, even after all this, if you're going to have a problem with the Internet in this area, then just don't use the Internet. And you think, wow, 
uh, that'd be like cutting off my or plucking out my eye or cutting off my hand. And and that's that's the kind of thing that uh, that we're talking about. And so. You know what tempts you. You know who bothers you. You need to have a garrison and it needs, maybe it has to be radical. I've known Christians that absolutely they've just, they had to quit their jobs uh, because sin was uh, more important, not sinning was more important to them than anything else. Now back to verses 7 through 12. We see in them that it is a characteristic of spiritual advance that we invest in the work of God. This is pretty straightforward. Verse 7, David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Also from Betah and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a large amount of bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been at war with Toy. And Joram brought him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. Now, the major emphasis in this section of verses is that David took the spoil he had won in all of his campaigns and dedicated these to the Lord. As you continue to read the story of David, you realize that he was amassing a great treasury for the building of God's temple by his son, Solomon. And so whenever he conquered one of these peoples, he took all of their valuables and he put them aside, saving up so that when Solomon came to power, he would be able to build the temple uh, uh, for the Lord. We might say that David was investing in the building of God's temple. In our case, it translates to giving to God's work, first to the church, which we could call his temple today on earth, and then to other works that further the gospel. This is perhaps the most practical and obvious of the characteristics we are listing. You are either giving to God's work or you're not. Give and gain spiritual ground. Now, the final characteristic of spiritual advance in this text is that you be concerned with your reputation. Verse 13, and David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. David gained a reputation. In his case, it was as a king with great military success. In our cases, it ought to be that we have a king who offers us great spiritual victory. Don't you have that confidence that as you're sharing with friends or family, co-workers, non-believers, wherever you find them, that Jesus Christ is sufficient for what they're going through? You, you don't know exactly how, do you? I mean, they come to you with a specific problem, and some of their problems are absolutely overwhelming. And, and you want to give them three steps or five steps or describe something to them, but you have to step back and say, I don't know exactly how, but I know who can get you through this. And, and a lot of you have that testimony before you were Christians. You were going through something that was just overwhelming. It was crushing. It was stressful. And then you met Jesus Christ. And you know what? The something that was going on in your life, it was still going on. It, it didn't get taken away. But somehow 
you could look at it completely differently. It didn't seem as pressing, even though it was serious, even though it was still a crisis, because you had Jesus Christ to walk with you in it and through it. Uh, And and, uh, if you don't know the Lord today, maybe there is something like that in your life. It, It might be a little thing from someone else's point of view, but it's a big thing to you. Or it could be something, you know, a matter of life and death. If you've come to find out how to overcome that, know that God has led you here so that you can know who can overcome that with you. And that person is Jesus Christ who came to the earth as a man, God in human flesh, died and rose from the dead that you might be saved. And so um, David, concerned with his reputation as king, we have a king who gives us great victory. It's a reminder that the way we live our lives will have an effect on everyone around us. Uh, you, most of you have had kids, you're familiar with the movie Monsters Incorporated. Uh, it reminds me of, and this is a paraphrase of what Roz said in Monsters Incorporated, they're watching you, always watching you. When you see people that aren't, especially that aren't Christians, know that that's, you'll hear that now. It's just, I'm watching you, Pensiero. You know, it's just, they're always watching you. Nothing wrong with being concerned about being watched and having a positive spiritual impact on others, both believers and non-believers. You know, here's the thing. People are going to watch you whether you care that they do or not. I mean, so you can sulk and think, I don't want to live, you know, under that kind of scrutiny in that kind of a bubble. Well, you have to. You're a Christian. You didn't know it, but that's what you signed on for. And people are watching you. And so embrace it and let them see Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, You know, if you have to do something that you think is questionable, have it to yourself and to God so that you don't stumble people. It's really very simple. So here then is a checklist for us. When God stirs my heart, I step out in faith. Rather than reduce my spiritual life to a set legalistic pattern, I'm led by the Holy Spirit. I reject the methods and techniques of the world in favor of spiritual behaviors and disciplines. I guard against things that might cause me to sin or fall back in my walk. I'm investing my money in the kingdom of God by giving to the work of God. I am concerned about having a positive effect on both believers and non-believers so that they will be open to the love of Jesus Christ. Those are the characteristics from this text that we can go through to see if we're advancing or not. Hopefully we can go through those and say, check. In each case. Now, in verses 15 through 18, contend for the character traits that indicate you are gaining ground. In the remaining verses, we get a look at David's administration as king, what we today would call his cabinet and his cabinet officers. Israel needed to be governed. Our lives need to be governed by God so that we are advancing and gaining ground. Verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered judgment and justice to all his people. You and I, I, excuse me, may not be kings, but almost all of us are given something to administrate. If you have a family, for instance, it's no small task to oversee its operations on a daily basis. Uh, If you have a typical family, husband, wife, children, the husband, the wife, Uh, mother, father, they are administrators with very serious uh, duties. At work, 
you probably have something or some people to administrate. Even if you're not the boss, uh, there are things that you're responsible for. Same with serving in the church. Uh, We give you an area of ministry and then you are responsible for its administration. And so David approached his duties, it says, with judgment and justice to all. John Gill, commenting on this, writes, and I quote, When David returned from his wars, he heard and tried all causes impartially, brought before him and gave sentence according to the law of God, and administered righteous judgment without any respect to persons. All had justice done them uh, that applied unto him, whether high or low, rich or poor. And indeed, during his wars, he was not negligent of civil government of his subjects and the distribution of justice to them by proper officers. And so... Just generally, this exhortation for us is to look upon things like family and work and church as a spiritual administration by which we want to help others see Jesus. You have to go to work. Some of you want to go to work. Uh, I know I love to go to work. I enjoy what I do. But uh, it's a spiritual administration. It's not just to earn money or to whatever we think it is on a physical level. It is spiritual. God has put you there to administrate his gospel in the lives of certain people. Family, of course, we understand that it's spiritual, although sometimes we we fall away from that and we need to be reminded that, oh, hey, I have a spiritual administration here. And so that's the exhortation generally. And then specifically, we can look at some of the cabinet officers, beginning in verse 16. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. General Joab led the army. As we've already said and seen, we are soldiers in a spiritual army. I would add to that that we will always be at high alert while we were on earth. We're in a battle, but not against flesh and blood. Our enemies are spiritual, so our warfare must be spiritual. We need to maintain a military mentality all the time. Not a paranoia, but to know that here's one metaphor of the church it's a it's an army and it's an it and we're in a battle that's never going to end until we go home to be with the lord and so there's no real furloughs there's no peacetime you know peacekeeping forces we're always being assailed and assaulted some way or another uh and so Uh, we want to have a military mentality. Then in verse 16, Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. According to Easton's Bible Dictionary, the recorder, and I quote, brought all weighty matters under the notice of the king, such as complaints, petitions, and wishes of subjects or foreigners. He also drew up papers for the king's guidance and prepared drafts of the royal will for the scribes. All treaties came under his oversight, and he had the care of the national archives or records. And so we would summarize by saying that the recorder brought matters to the notice of the king. We do that as we seek the Lord in prayer. Then the recorder was concerned with the cares and complaints of citizens and foreigners. We are to be concerned to encourage the citizens of heaven and to evangelize non-believers. Verse 17, Zadok the son of Ahitab and Ahimelech the son of Abiathar were the priests. Priests offered sacrifices first for themselves, then on behalf of the people. In New Testament times, all of us are called a priesthood, and so this reminds us to first offer ourselves living sacrifices that we might serve the Lord by ministering to one another in the body of Christ and to others 
who are yet outside as non-believers. Verse 17 goes on to say, Sariah was the scribe. The scribe in the Old Testament was a kind of secretary of state, treasurer, secretary, uh, combined office. One commentator said, we may think of them as the king's secretaries, writing his letters, drawing up his decrees, managing his finances. We might apply this by saying that we should take our king's dictation as he speaks to us through the Bible, and then we are to go about as living letters so others can read about him through our radically changed lives. The Apostle Paul speaks of Christians as living epistles or living letters known and read by men. And so we take God's dictation in and then we uh, give it out in the way that we speak and live our lives. Verse 18, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites. According to the historian Josephus, these guys were the king's bodyguards and Benaiah was uh, the guy that was set over them. Now the Lord needs no defending from us. Neither does his word need defending. Charles Spurgeon is credited with the saying, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. Ah, but you must let him loose. And here then we have encouragement to give an answer to everyone of the hope that is within us. Uh, and so it's a reminder, the power of the word of God. Paul said the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Uh, I encourage first service this way. I don't know if you'll agree or not, but you know, a lot of times we're rightfully concerned when people ask us questions about the Lord or His Word or Christianity or whatever it is, we want to give the right response. Uh, and yet sometimes I think we're so concerned about what our words should be that we're not really listening to maybe God's Word in the sense that sometimes we just share a scripture that's on our heart. If you don't know a scripture that actually... You know, I love those books that you can go to. Somebody says, well... Are you asking me, is your question about anxiety? Would you say that anxiety, you know, or anger, what category is it? Because I'm going to go to this book that gives me some verses on them. And that's fine. That's great. Counselors use them all the time. Telephone counselors, that's wonderful. I would encourage you, if you can't really just connect with that, just share any Bible verse you know. And, and then when they say, what? Then say, well, uh... God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and just start talking to them from there because God's word is a powerful thing when it is let loose. And sometimes I think, I know it's happened with me, I'm so worried about my words and giving a five minute this or the, you know, that I'm not ready for that I, I just, I don't give God's word. And so just trust in the word itself. I admit my next statement might be a little bit distant from the text but, I, but it's still biblical, and I was thinking about this. Be a bodyguard in this sense. Guard by holding in high esteem the body of Christ. One of the metaphors of the church is that we are Christ's body. Another is that we are his bride collectively. Now, guys, and you gals will understand this too, uh, especially when you were courting and you were you know, uh, engaged to be married, uh, you didn't like it too much when people said that your fiancé was an ugly weirdo. You know, very few people took you aside and said, can I gossip with you and backbite about your fiancé? I mean, it, it, it didn't go over too well, did it? No, I don't think so. 
And yet so often we're drawn into these things in the body of Christ. And so just realize, I mean, we do need to talk about things. There is counseling. I'm not cutting off all that. I mean, there are some churches, they make you sign papers saying you'll never say anything bad about the church. There's an, oh, there needs to be an avenue of complaint and of, of real dialogue. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about gossip and backbiting and those kinds of things. Just walk away from it. Don't do it because you are talking about the bride of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so guard the body. It's a very precious thing. It's, it's flawed and it's failing in some ways because it's human. Uh, you and I are a part of it. Uh, but uh, from the Lord's perspective, he sees us as beautiful, altogether lovely, with no spot or blemish, the way that he will present us to him in the end. Verse 18, and David's sons were chief ministers. David's sons, uh, as his descendants, they were in line to rule after him, if not as king in some other capacity in the uh, nation. David therefore had them serving in his administration where he could teach them about the Lord, where they could see what it was like to be the Lord's king, to, to be the man after God's own heart. Are you teaching your kids about the Lord? Are you evangelizing your children? Are you with them often in the house of the Lord? Or have other activities started to take priority? Uh, it, God first, right? I mean, if you have to make a list, God first, marriage, family second. Right? Uh, prior, it's not always that easy uh, to make a list of priorities, but, but those would be your priorities. But having said that, your family is not something divorced from the Lord or from walking with the Lord or from being with the people of the Lord. Uh, and yet so often in our society, I, let me share something with you that you probably figured out. The world, the non-Christian world of well-meaning people doesn't care about you going to church and being spiritual anymore. There are very few places that respect Sunday, for example. I'm not saying there's anything sacred about Sunday, but it's traditionally the day that people go to church. Most of your youth activities now and your family activities take place on Sunday because that's when most non-believers want to do things. And so you and I get involved with them and we have to start juggling our spiritual priorities with our family. I'm just here to tell you that you shouldn't have to do that. They're the same. Your spiritual priorities are your family's priorities. And so, so take a look at your own calendar and you figure that out. I will tell you that it, there is nothing more personally satisfying than to see your children saved, serving, and walking with the Lord. Now, all these offices speak to our character as believers. If character counts, and it certainly does, it counts most that ours would be spiritually grounded in the ways and in the works of the Lord. If you pursue Christian character, you're going to find yourself exhibiting the characteristics that we checked for in the first part of the study. They go hand in hand. Let's pray together.